for real, for real, during that video, I, I came out of the room where we do music. And I, I rushed in here and I did put on a jacket. I had a little wardrobe change. And I came in here and my wife just ran up to me and powdered my forehead. So apparently, apparently I was a little shiny during the worship set. I was sweating a little bit. It's like, it's kind of warm in here. But anyway, I don't know. I hope this is better for you, uh, for my non-shiny forehead. But, God. <laughs> okay, so listen, we're in the series called Truish. And um, we're talking about statements that Christians make or things Christians do or say or whatever and trying to answer the question of whether they are true or whether they are not true or whether they are truish, somewhere in the middle, and these statements are all over the place, and they might be one of those things or they might be something else. But so this week, as I'm, I'm thinking about everything that's going on, uh, a song popped into my head. A song that for some of you who may have grown up in church the way that I did. I know some of you did and some of you didn't, but some of you did and you grew up and you did Sunday school and you had all the cute little songs and everything. There is this song that I remember from growing up. We would sing it all the time, a simple song. It goes something like this. If I can do it, my voice is kind of tired after that last song, <laughs> but. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Oh, we're singing it. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Some of you didn't sing with worship, but you just sang with that. <laughs> I, you remember that song? I remember that song. Let me ask you a question. Is it true? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Is it true? Listen, I usually, my goal is to not only teach you scripture, but to have fun doing it <laughs> and to crack jokes and to be very interactive and to, to throw a one-liner in here and there. And I want you to know that what I'm going to talk about today isn't going to have much of that. What we talk about today is going to be very serious. Because with all that our nation is facing, it's more important than ever that we answer that question. Does Jesus love all the people of the world? Not only, and not only to answer that question, because you might find that, that answering that question is simple, but actually applying the answer to that question. How in the world do we do that? Tensions are at an understandably high point in our country right now with people's response to the death of George Floyd. And not only is this a, a tragedy in and of itself for the people who are directly involved in it, but it is a symbol of a much greater issue in our society, an issue that has existed since people have. And though we might like to think that we've risen above it, we have not. Some would like to say that we live in a post-racial society. We do not. 
Some would say that people with a darker shade of skin have the same opportunities in our country as those with a lighter shade of skin. They do not. Some would say that we have achieved our goal of a nation where all men are created equal and they are all endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But we do not. While we may stand for the equality of all people and believe in that, we do not, in fact, personally or systematically treat everyone as if they are of equal value. And I have a, I have a confession to make. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it this week. Wasn't planning on talking about it this week. Was planning on doing something altogether different. And let me tell you why I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to admit that there's actually a problem. It's never been my problem. Why would it be? I live in a country that was founded by people like me for people like me. So I don't know what it feels like to be an outsider in my own community because my community was built for me by people like me. I, I'm a, I am a white man from a white family who grew up in a neighborhood of all white people, a town of almost all white people in upstate New York. I went to a school where everybody was white. Almost, almost all of my friends were white growing up. I went to a college where almost everybody was white. I graduated and though I moved to Salisbury, which is a lot more diverse than when I, where I grew up, I worked in an office where everybody was white. I, growing up, I didn't think about it. I didn't need to. I didn't have any thoughts positively or negatively, honestly, about people of other races. I just didn't think about them or didn't care about the issue and didn't know about the issue. And the reality is whether I realized it then or not, the issue of race never worked against me. It always worked for me. It was never my disadvantage. It has always been my advantage. And that doesn't take anything away from the hard work that I've done or, or what I've put my hand to and how I've put forth effort and what I've been able to accomplish in life. It just means that something has been working behind the scenes, not only while I'm here and alive, but throughout the course of history where I didn't have to think about that problem or admit that it was one. And so I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to admit that there's actually a real problem here. I don't want to talk about it second because I don't fully understand it. I don't get it. It's hard because of who I am and because of my experience. It's very hard for me to empathize with people who struggle. It's hard for me to understand what it feels like. I know what it's like to get pulled over in my car by a police officer or to see a police officer sitting by the side of the road as I drive by. I don't know what it's like for my, my brothers and sisters who are of minorities. I don't know what that feels like to be pulled over. 
I don't know what it feels like to be an outsider. I don't understand it. I don't understand where it all comes from. I don't understand completely how the systems and structures that are in place in our world today are affected by racism from the past or how they continue to be affected by racism from the present. It's all very confusing to me. I don't understand all of the educational implications or the or the, the, the justice system implications. I don't understand the economic implications. I don't understand the criminal implications. I don't understand. I can't get my head wrapped around it. And I personally don't like to talk about things that I, don't, I can't get my head wrapped around. Because I don't want to be ignorant and I don't want to sound ignorant. Which brings me to the, sec- the third thing, third reason I don't want to talk about it. Because I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And even if I have something to say or I think I have something to say, I'm afraid I'm going to be wrong. And I'm afraid that, that when, I, when I'm trying to say something helpful, it's going to end up being hurtful. And that people that I do care about and I want to help and I want to support, that I'm going to do the opposite. I don't know what to say or I don't know what not to say. I don't, I don't even, frankly, I don't even know what terms to use. I don't, know, I don't know what to call myself. I don't know what to call other people or if I even should call us anything. I don't know, I don't know whether to say, I don't know whether to say uh, black or white or brown or, or African-American or Caucasian or Hispanic or I don't, I don't even know what terms to use. So I'm so afraid of being wrong or hurting someone that I don't say anything about it. What if I say something that I'm intending to be helpful and it ends up being hurtful. I don't want to be ignorant and I don't want to sound ignorant. And so I don't want to talk about it. And the last reason I don't want to talk about it is because honestly, what can I I don't think I can change anything. I mean, what could I do? How could I even how could I even be a voice of influence? And I don't want to make it about me. <laughs> I don't want to use it as something to draw attention to myself. And so if I'm not one of these people who's in a position of extreme authority or influence, if I'm not a, an activist or if I don't see myself that way, then I don't want to talk about it. And just because I have a platform doesn't mean I have something meaningful to say. So who am I? And how in the world would I ever change someone's heart or mind? So I don't want to talk about it. And I was wrestling with all four of those things this week. And I was planning on doing a message. The, the phrase for this week was, money is the root of all evil. I'm going to do a message from 1 Timothy 6. And I couldn't, as simple as that concept is, and as easy as it should be to talk about, as I was trying to prepare the message in my head, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of things. I couldn't put it together. And I realized that God was frustrating my thoughts. And anytime that happens, and it's happened several times in in my ministry, anytime that God frustrates my thoughts and I just can't get it together for a message, it's because I'm getting ready to say the wrong message. And so I stopped and I said, okay, God, what am I supposed to talk about? And he impressed on my heart that I needed to talk about this issue of race. And I was instantly scared out of my mind for those four reasons that I told you. Because I don't want to admit that it's a problem. Because I don't understand it. 
because I don't know what to say and because I don't think I can actually make any difference. And as I ran through those objections in my head, I feel like God impressed on me four things. First, there is a problem at the root of this that God needs us to see clearly. There is a problem. Second, nobody fully understands the problem and all of its implications except for God. Third, we only need to say what he's already said. And fourth, he is the one responsible for changing people, not us. And in about 30 seconds, he obliterated all four of my objections. So that's what I want to do. I don't want to tell you what I think about this. I don't want to tell you even necessarily what I feel about it. I want to tell you what God says about it. I want to talk about what is at the root of this problem that we need to learn and we need to allow God to change within us. And as a Christian, I am on a journey of learning how to see things the way that God sees them. And so when it comes to this issue, I want to see it the way that God sees it. And as a pastor, I have the responsibility to you of helping you to do the same thing as I do it. Learning how to see this clearly, think about it clearly, and respond clearly. There's a problem that exists within each and every one of us that sits at the root of racism. There is a problem that exists within each and every one of us that sits at the root of all hatred. There is a problem that exists within each and every one of us that will destroy us from the inside out if we don't recognize it. But if we can see it for what it is, we can change. And we can show the world what the love of God actually looks like. In order to do that, I want you to consider two treats. When I'm trying to work something out in my head, I draw it. That's why you'll find that I'm often drawing for our messages. It helps me think about things correctly. Two truths. See if I can do this. My art skills aren't the best. Thank you. My wife told me I was a great artist. I was digging for a compliment, so it's I appreciate that. It's frustrating to people who aren't when you're digging. <laughs> These are happy little trees. Thank you, Murray. <laughs> okay. Hang in there. I've got to get these drawn. Can you hear the marker drawing on the paper? Two trees. Now, the tree represents a society. Two societies. Okay? And you have the trunk of that society. And then you have the branches. And the branches are the, the systems. Okay? Or the organizations or the institutions of that society. Things like government. Uh, got a list. 
the justice system. The economy. Schools. culture we have these two trees these are two societies when we look at one tree we find that it is producing and, and the, the, if these are the structures then the leaves are the people of the society right so the trunk feeds the feeds the branches, the branches serve the people, okay? So the people are the leaves. We look at the first tree, and we look at it, the fruit that it's bearing, the behaviors, the, the outcomes of that society. We look at this first tree, and it is bearing bad fruit. Things like hate, anger, Things like division, inequity, things like racism, greed, elitism, power. Abuse. Then we look at the second tree. And the second tree is bearing good fruit. Things like love, equality, compassion. Unity. Justice. Generosity. Liberty. We look at these two trees and we look at the difference in the fruit and we have to ask the question, What's the difference? What's the difference between these two trees? I want to give you a hint. It's not above the surface. It's below. It's sneaky. And it's hidden. I believe it's pictured really, really well in a story that Jesus told. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's going to be very familiar to many of you, but you may think of it in a new way today. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer, expert in the Old Testament law, not a lawyer like you would think of today, but the Old Testament Jewish law, expert in the law, stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, 
what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Now this, this is the key to life. And Jesus himself said this on a couple of occasions. So this guy is reiterating what Jesus has already said. You take all of the Old Testament law and you boil the whole thing down. And it's two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the key to life, basis of the entire Old Testament law. But that wasn't good enough for this lawyer. That wasn't satisfactory to him. Because the knowledge, knowing that we are supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself is easy to accept. But actually applying it to our life and living it out is much, much harder to do. So he wants to know when Jesus affirms this teaching, what he actually means. 29, verse 29. But he... Wanting to justify himself, that's a pretty important phrase. He, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because there is obviously a group of people he wants to exclude from the second part of this commandment. Love my neighbor as myself? Please, Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is. He was apparently good, or so he thought, with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this loving your neighbor thing is a lot harder to do than it sounds. And he wants to know what he's supposed to do. Or, if we believe the way Luke is saying this, he wants to know who he doesn't have to love. So Jesus answers, not with a typical answer, but with a story. Then Jesus answered, this is verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. It's a dangerous road between the two cities. This would have been a common occurrence. Fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, we can make an assumption. We've got to be careful about making assumptions. But I would assume that the people who were listening to this story would assume that that man was most likely a Jewish man who was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. One of their own people. Now, verse 31. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This is interesting. Likewise, a Levite, who was a religious, professional religious person also. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion now listen 
I know it's hard for us to put ourselves in the mentality of the people who are listening to this story because we live in a different time and a different place. So to understand all of the cultural things that are going on, it's really hard for us. We need to try if we're going to understand the story. And what we need to understand is that Jews hated the Samaritans, hated them, avoided them at all costs. If they saw a Samaritan where a Samaritan wasn't supposed to be, they would say, you don't belong here. They hated them. The Samaritans, we talked about this before, but the Samaritans, that group of people, were the product of a civil war, essentially within or a split within the nation of Israel. It started with the son of King Solomon, and they broke out, and there was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Israel, and the northern kingdom went and then started intermarrying with other nations. That's who the Samaritans are. So the Jews considered themselves pure. The Jews considered themselves holy and honoring to God. The Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. They considered them outsiders. They considered them traitors, so they hated them. They would, If they were journeying from Galilee, which was in the north, down to Judea, which is in the south, they would have to go through Samaria, but they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria. Samaria because that wasn't a neighborhood that they wanted to be in and so they would avoid it there was hatred between these two people so when Jesus tells a story and he says the priest walks by and the Levite walks by but the Samaritan stops and has compassion he is making a bold dramatic statement it's not just about everybody helping their neighbor the good Samaritan. It's, this is about an issue that exists racially and nationally between two groups of people, and Jesus is trying to change the way they think about those people, but also to change the way they think about themselves. Because the priest should have stopped, the Levite should have stopped, but they didn't. And not only does the Samaritan stop to help, but Jesus, like, turns the knife in the story because it doesn't even stop there. He keeps going. And he says, verse 34, So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever you spend, more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. Jesus is really driving the point home. He doesn't have to say all of this, but he's choosing to say all of this because he's trying to get it through their thick skulls. What this guy does and then verse 36, he says, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, I imagine reluctantly, he said, he who showed mercy on him. He could see it. He could see the difference. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do Likewise, what is the difference between the priest and the Levite's response and the Samaritan's response? The priest and the Levite, I don't know what they had going on. I don't know what their thoughts were. Jesus doesn't give us that kind of detail. But clearly, the priest and the Levite were more concerned about themselves than they were about this man who was hurting and so they walked by. And the Samaritan, 
was more concerned about the person that was hurting than about himself. And so he helped to the complete degree. What's the difference between these two trees? The first tree, I told you it was not above the surface. It's the soil that feeds the tree. It's the soil that sends nutrients up through the roots and into the trunk to the branches, determines how the branches function and how the branches think and how the branches act that eventually goes out to the people and produces the fruit that we see. It's the soil that they sit in. The tree that bears the bad fruit sits in the soil of pride. It sits in the soil of pride. This is, this is the priest and the Levite. I am the most important person. I need to look out for myself. I need to lift myself up by my own bootstraps. I need to take care of myself. I need to make myself as great as I can possibly make myself. I need to be empowered individually. I need to be improved individually. The pursuit of happiness, self-glorification, self-valuation. I am the most human human. And therefore, everybody who's like me is more human than those who are not like me. This is, this is buried deep within our nature. It is natural for us to prefer ourselves above everyone else, and not only to prefer ourselves, but to prefer people who are like us. There's some sort of self-glorification that happens through that, some sort of sense of self-preservation that happens. It is very natural for us to take that position, the prideful position. I am the most valuable human being. And so people who are like me are of almost the same value. And people who are completely different than me, who, wear, who have different skin color, who wear different clothes, who in, listen to different music, who live in different places or different countries or different neighborhoods, people who speak different languages or different versions of the language that I speak, they are inherently less valuable than me because I am of greatest value. This is pride. This is at the root of all racism, all of it. What you might call macro racism and micro racism, at the root of it all. We ask ourselves, how could somebody justify owning another human being and making them serve them? I'll tell you how. It's very simple. By convincing themselves that people with darker brown skin than theirs who come from Africa aren't fully human and aren't as intrinsically valuable as they are. That's how Thomas, Dra Thomas Jefferson 
He's the one who drafted the Declaration of Independence. Could write the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness while he owned slaves. How could he exist with that kind of contradiction? I know how. Pride. I am the most valuable person. People like me are the most valuable people. Everyone else is less. We marvel at how Nazi soldiers in good conscience could march millions of Jews into gas chambers and watch children starve to death and attempt to exterminate an entire race of humanity, an entire group of people. But it's actually quite human. They convinced themselves that Jews were inferior, that they were subhuman, that they were less of less value. And they're wrong. They're wrong. It is, de- it is the devaluation of human beings that were created by God in the image of God. I am not more valuable than the person sitting next to me, regardless of what's going on with them. I am not more valuable than a person on the other side of the globe who lives a completely different life than me and speaks a completely different language than me that has completely different values than I I have. I am not more valuable than the person who lives in my own community that looks different than me or talks differently than I do or even believes differently than I do. I am not more valuable than they are. Does Jesus love the little children of the world? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The question is, do I? But pride will keep me from doing that. And before we get too judgmental and talk about macro issues of racism and extermination of people and slavery and all of this, it is not fundamentally different than seeing someone walk through our neighborhood and think, you don't belong here. But I do. There's the subtext. You don't belong here, but I do. It is not fundamentally different than looking at the demographic makeup of a school and choosing whether to put your kids in that school or not put your kids in that school because you don't like how monochromatic it is. You're not comfortable with it. We're making value decisions about human beings. That's the problem. We have to open our eyes. It's the difference between using proper force with someone in a criminal situation and leaving, leaving your knee on their neck for two extra minutes. Two minutes too long or whatever it is because you don't value the person under the knee the same way you would value someone else who's like you. This is a real thing. And we need to understand as... I'm assuming most people, the vast majority who are watching this are Americans like me. We need to understand our society 
is built on this. We live in a nation that celebrates pride. That celebrates the human spirit. That celebrates personal achievement. That celebrates individualism. Why are we surprised when a nation that celebrates pride and arrogant pride and arrogance produces citizens who are prideful and arrogant? Why are we surprised when this is the fruit of our community? When this is the soil that we've planted ourselves in? We are creating our own monster. And it's because we refuse to recognize and repent of the fact that this is where we live. And listen, we can talk about all these systems and we can try to fix them and we can try to make changes to our culture or changes to our schools or changes to our economy or changes to our justice system or changes to our government. But if we make changes up here, but we don't make a change here, we will just end up with the same thing, a more diverse version of the same thing. And, and that might be better, but it's not best. Consider the second tree. Where is the second tree planted? The second tree is planted in the soil of humility. The decision, the conviction, to value other people equally with ourselves, regardless of how different they are from us. It's the decision to consider others even better than ourselves. In humility, consider others better than yourself. The scripture tells us. Jesus said the second is like it, the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself to live in a way that honors God and to live in the manner that Jesus lived requires humility the growth of humility in our own heart and the death of pride in our heart you can have the same tree it's the same tree it's the same institutions Listen, there are issues that exist in our government. There are issues that exist in our justice system. There are issues that exist in our economy. And there are issues that exist in our school. And there are issues that exist in our culture. But they're not because of those things in and of themselves. They're because of the soil they're planted in. I actually believe that a, a society that is planted in the soil of humility, a free or a representative democracy is the best form of government we could ask for. It's amazing. It's incredible. It gives people a voice without giving people like crazy, weird mob power. Okay. I think a system of justice where we're where we're uh, where we have a good set of laws and where we are 
uh, to face a jury of our peers and where we are innocent until proven guilty and all that. It's fantastic. Our economy, I believe a free market economy is the best method of, of, of economic growth and, and empowering people. I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that our schools are incredible. Providing pre, free public education to all the children in our country is unbelievable. And even culture. So culture gets a bad rap, but I love sports. I love, there's great music out there and great art and great, all kinds of stuff. Cult, there's nothing, it's not the institutions that are a problem. It's the soil they are planted in that are the problem. And these things can be great and produce great fruit when they're planted in the right soil. Jesus said, and of course this lawyer reiterates, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You ever thought about that? The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. How is the second part like the first part? They both require humility. We have to humble ourselves before God. And we have to humble ourselves before other people. How do we do it? Well, think back to the story that Jesus told. He gives this example of the, of the Samaritan and he says, go and do likewise. How do we do that? I mean, unless we literally see somebody who has been robbed by the side of the road and can, can help them, you know, how do we apply it? I want you to consider something. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He is describing himself. He is the one who sees our pain and has compassion on us. He is the one who came to us and bandaged and disinfected our wounds through his death on the cross in our place. He is the one who brings us mercifully to safety, forgives our sin. He is the one who paid our debt so we could be healed. He is the one who continues to offer us grace and forgiveness. And he is the one who will return one day to complete the work of redemption. He is the good Samaritan. So if you want to know how to go and do likewise, we go and do like Jesus. Who though he had the ability and the position to receive honor and glory, to remain in heaven, and to be totally worthy of all of the worship that he, he, he deserves and he receives, humbled himself, taking the form of a man. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for ours. How do we plant ourselves in this soil? We follow the example of Jesus. Jesus said this, John chapter 13. Those of you that were with us in our, in our Jesus series out of John at the beginning of the year, this is going to be familiar to you. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that's action. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
how had he loved them? If you remember this from the series, John chapter 13 records the time that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And if you remember, he didn't just wash the feet of the disciples who followed him. He washed Judas's feet too. And he says, as I have loved you, as I have served you, love and serve each other. And he says in verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is, this is not the tree that we live in. This, this does not represent our society. We believe this tree is coming. We believe Jesus is going to return and he is going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And in that kingdom, it will be all of this, everything that happens, the people, the fruit, the, the branches, everything is going to be grounded in the place that it needs to be. That's the bad news. The good news is, we also don't live in this tree. We live in a third tree. Some of you are like, why do you leave space between those trees? <laughs> we live in a third tree. This tree has its roots in both soils at the same time. Lost my hat. Jeremy, thank you for staying on the tight shot while I bent down to get the cap for the marker. <laughs> You're the best. We live in the third tree, which is fed by both soils at the same time. And so we see both good fruit and bad fruit. This world is not as bad as the first, but it's also not as good as the second. And that makes this world very confusing and very frustrating because it's not as simple or as binary as this. It's messy because it's in the middle. But if we want this tree to produce more good fruit so that people can see the difference between these soils, so that they can see what the love and compassion and humility of Jesus Christ looks like in a world that has a mixture of these two things, 
then anytime we come across bad fruit, we need to first look at ourselves. And we need to say, am I responsible because I've been pulling from the bad soil? Am I thinking about this correctly? Because it's not, this, is not, this is not a case where each one of these roots is a person. And so there are good people, there are bad people who are prideful and there are good people who are humble. No, no, we are all a mixture of both. And, and based on a, this situation or that situation or this time in our life or that time in our life, we could be pulling from either one of these soils. And our goal as a Christian is to pull completely from this soil, to eradicate pride and to increase humility so that we can become more and more like Jesus. And so with every bad fruit that we see, we need to ask the question, which soil am I pulling from on this? When I think specifically, when I think specifically about the issue of racism, what is my response to that? Is it a prideful response or is it a humble response? When I think about what I'm going to say about it, if I say something, is it a prideful statement or is it a humble statement? Is it the kind of thing that the typical American would say about this or is it the kind of thing that Jesus would say about it? I got to make sure that I am pulling from the right soil. And at the same time, I can't get too mad at the people who are pulling from the, from the prideful soil because I'm there all the time. So I'm not judgmental of them, but what I want to do is I, if I know, if I can say, I am thinking about this humbly, I'm thinking about this in love, I'm thinking about this with, with people being of equal value as I, I am and, and, and having the right to be treated that way, regardless of what any of that, whatever, when I see someone who's pulling from the prideful soil, my job isn't to judge them. My job is to help them and to show them a different way, to show them the path of humility. And maybe in being shown the path of humility, their eyes will be open to see that that's Jesus and that they need him and his influence in their life. And if we can do work here and pull more from humility to follow the example of Jesus, then we will see this tree become healthier and healthier and healthier, knowing that it is never going to be fully healthy because we live in a sinful world where people naturally will pull from pride unless they learn otherwise and choose otherwise. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And when asked who my neighbor should be, Jesus didn't answer that question. Jesus showed them how to be a neighbor to everyone. So, even if you agree with all of that, the hard thing is, what do I do? What can I do? I wish I had all the answers to that, but let me just give you three things that I think are helpful, things that I'm doing. Number one, pray. And I certainly don't want that to come off as any sort of cliche. This is for, this is for real, for real. Pray. Because the only one truly capable of changing a human heart is God. And so we can say things and we can present ideas and we can teach God's truth and we can set an example, but ultimately it is up to the work that God does in someone's heart to transform them from the inside out. 
I need to pray not just about other people, but I need to pray about me. And I need to ask God to show me what I haven't seen before. To show me any pride or arrogance that exists within me, particularly on this issue. So that I can see it, understand where it's coming from, and deal with it. And make the choices to live humbly. We need to pray. The second thing that we need to do is we need to learn. I want to encourage you. You may not think this is your issue. You may not think that you need to give it any time or attention. I want to encourage you to educate yourself on this. Because I promise you there are perspectives. And and I want to encourage you to broaden the span of influence in your life to listen to voices who are different than yours. What will often happen, we'll become convinced this is an issue because we're listening to people who are just like us. Of course. Open yourself up to some different voices. People who struggle with this issue. And I know it can be confusing because you don't know who to trust or what sources. Ask. Ask people who you know are engaged in this issue who they should listen to, who they should read, so that you can begin to understand how this all works. And no, we're not going to ever fully understand it. Even people who are, who are the greatest minds when it comes to these issues still don't all see things the same way. But that's because the only one who sees it correctly is God. He understands it all. So begin to learn. Listen to podcasts. Read books. Pay attention to what's going on. If for no other reason that hearing other people's perspectives and valuing their perspectives as equal with mine helps me to value them as people equally with myself and helps me move into a place of humility instead of into a place of pride and entrenchment. So learn. And then the third thing is to serve. That's what Jesus demonstrated for us with the story of the Samaritan. It's what Jesus demonstrated when he washed the disciples' feet and told them to go and to love each other that way. Actively doing something for someone else to show them that they are of value, that they are loved. And I have to tell you that there are times in our life when a person or a community have been dishonored for so long that we need to show them extra honor so they can see the value that they really have. Now, I don't know serving people. I, I think that application, when it gets down to the, to the ground for, for us, is different for every single person who's listening to this. Because your circles are different, your influence is different, your, your, your past is different, your experiences are different, All of that. And so maybe you include that in your prayer to say, God, how do you want me to serve? So that I can show people who have gotten the message that they're not of value, that they are, and they are to me. I don't know all what to do, but I think those three things will take us a long way and get us started. And so we're just going to do the first one. We're going to start it together. We're going to pray together. And I'm going to pray that God will open our hearts, each of us individually, to hear what we need to hear so we can see and understand what's in our own heart 
and that God will begin moving all of us, because I'm with you, moving us from the soil of pride to the soil of humility in the name and example of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. God, I come to you this morning and want to confess and admit what we all already know. I am broken. And everybody listening to this is broken. We struggle every day with with our sinful nature, which inspires us to pride, judgment, hatred. It inspires us to glorify ourselves and worship ourselves and value ourselves and by association the people that are like us. But God, we want to see people the way you see people. To love people the way that you love people. To understand no matter who someone is or where they came from, you love them with a deep love and you gave your son, Jesus Christ, for them just as much as for me. And how dare I treat someone with less value than you give them? So I ask for me, I ask for everyone who's a part of this, that you would open our eyes. And I pray that people who are watching this video and experiencing this with us will be making the same prayer. God, open my eyes. Help me to see where pride still exists, where that soil is feeding into my body and through me into our society and our community and even into our church. Humble me. Help us to know what it is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. So we open up ourselves now, God, to to learn, teach us through other people how to see, how to feel. Put opportunities in front of us to serve, whatever that looks like, and to show people the value that you've given to them, the love that you have for them. And God, we pray for the opportunity to share with them the hope that you have for them through your son. We don't know how to make sense of everything, but we know that you do, so we're trusting you to lead us and move in our lives so we can make a change. It's in your name we pray. Amen.